We turn this morning to the Word of God as we find it in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, sorry, 3, 1 John chapter 3, begin to read the last verse of chapter 2, verse 29, if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous." He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God hath was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that has to do with the destroying the works of the devil in us and setting us free from his bondage and from his rule. And once we are set free, of course, from his bondage, and from his rule, then what you would read in verses 9 and 10, Whosoever is born of God hath, doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, who slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. But if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as also 
he gave us commandment. He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, he, and he in him. Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit, who he hath given us. Thus far the reading of the apostolic word, and we're going to consider this morning what the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3 of First John. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. That's referring, of course, to God's seed. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God neither he that loveth not his brother. An interesting passage. A significant passage. And one that is somewhat controversial that has given rise to a number of explanations and is the occasion for disagreement between various theologians, a text that has by many been wrenched from its true meaning and used to support error, one might say bad theology and one that has been used even to minimize the serious, uh, seriousness of, of sin, as we shall see. But for all that, for its misinterpretations and its misapplications, this is a significant text with respect to godliness and the call to godliness, one that may, by which we may properly understand, and when it's properly understood, underscores you understand that which is true godliness. It sets forth what is to characterize a true Christianity, a true believer and true faith and a genuine child of God. And you may wonder about the words true and genuine, why not simply say, sets forth what characterizes a believer or faith or conversion. For the same reason what you read in the catechism. It's interesting, you know, in Lord's Day 7, Question answer 21 asks, what is true faith? Why not simply say, what is faith? And then you get to Lord's Day 33 and it asks in 88, of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Why not just ask, what is conversion? True conversion, true faith. Because the writers of the catechism, like the apostle long before them, knew that there are counterfeit forms of faith and counterfeit forms of conversion, outward manifestations that are not 
in the end really rooted in the heart and in sincerity. So here we have the apostle who is setting before us that which demonstrates that one has been truly born again and is a child of God indeed. And what is it, pray tell, that demonstrates, sets forth, that one is a child of God indeed and a true believer? Well, beloved, that's our text. Whosoever is born of God, meaning in truth, doth not commit sin. He cannot sin because he is born of God, whatever that might mean. And that's the burden of the sermon to explain exactly what the apostle is saying here, what he is setting forth. What he is setting forth are words that tell us, beloved, what it is that is pleasing to God and what it is that has his approval, what life, what walk has his approval and is pleasing to him. And after all, beloved, isn't that what we are interested in? Not simply whether or not we're going to be in heaven in the end, and we're heaven-bound, that's of importance, not not minimizing that, but at the heart of our concern is, am I walking in a way that is pleasing to God? Do I have my Father's approval? And that's what the apostle is getting at as well. Who has the Father's approval? May know he has, if you will, the Father's approval. And the answer has to do with he doth not commit sin and he cannot sin because he is born of God and we must understand beloved what that means what the apostle is saying by those phrases so we consider this text under the theme the child of God finding it impossible to sin going to consider first of all the historical occasion for this declaration and second what it is that distinguishes the true child of God from those who make the claim but in the end are exposed as not being such arising out of a distinct motivation and why we need to hear this and if you will to know this In order to understand this passage, we need to understand, first of all, what's the main theme of the apostolic word here, and secondly, what was the great error teaching that was loose in the early New Testament church that he was refuting and so concerned about. For the theme, beloved, of the epistle, it has to do with 
fellowship, fellowship with God. And then who is it that indeed has fellowship with God? Who is it that may know indeed that he is the approval of God and the assurance that he has the approval of God and walks in fellowship with God? And who is it that must be told that if you imagine that as you are living and walking that you have God's approval or are yet in fellowship with God, you are sadly mistaken and grievously deceived? Who is it that must be told that if you imagine you can be living as you're living and interested in what you are interested, that you are pleasing to God, you are mistaken because how you are living at the moment, how you are walking is not of God, but is of the devil himself. As to the theme of the, of the, of the epistle, all you have to do is open First John up and you begin to read at ch- in chapter 1, And it speaks of that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and so on. And you get to verse 3, and it says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Christ Jesus. So fellowship with us, who have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Christ Jesus. And then you go down to verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth, and then seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Who is it that has fellowship with God according to the apostle? Well, according to the apostle, he may have and does have fellowship with God who lives in accordance with the apostolic word, according to doctrine and to practice. It is that simple. Who has fellowship with God? He who lives according to the apostolic word in doctrine and in practice. And that brings us to the error. Because there were those in that early New Testament time, as most of the apostles had died and passed the scene when John finally writes this epistle, that the age of the apostles was coming to its conclusion and they were as Christians to enter into a new age, Old Testament, New Testament, apostolic age, and then really the fullness of a New Testament age. And they, who were the new teachers, were the ones who were setting before them how one might have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not just a measure of the Holy Spirit, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit and enter into the fullness of a New Testament age. They were those who later became known as Gnostics. And they were setting the force as those who were replacing the apostles as the teachers of the church, just as the apostles had replaced Moses as the teacher of the church, if you think about it. Once Moses had certain doctrines, didn't he? He said, you have to bring animal sacrifices He said you had to be circumcised by the Spirit of God. You had to keep certain holy days in addition to the Sabbath day. And you might not eat unclean meat. And the apostles came along and said the Spirit of Christ has told us you don't have to bring animal sacrifices anymore and be circumcised. And you may eat any kind of meat you want. Whatever it is. And the special holy days have passed away as well. Well, as 
they have, with their teaching, set aside various of the Old Testament commandments for those who were like little children under all kinds of restrictions. And then the apostles brought the church into the age of adolescence, which has greater liberty but still has restrictions. We have teenagers and we certainly give them more rights and privileges than our children, but there are still restrictions about, you know, when they're supposed to be home and so on and how long they may drive and where they may drive. But that's not full maturity. That's not adulthood. Now these teachers, the Gnostics, spelled with a silent G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, from which comes the word to know, which has a silent K, you know. We have the deeper knowledge. We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know it? Because we are those who simply don't have an intellectual head knowledge of so much doctrine, if you will, but the experience. And in the body, out of the body, we know not. And it's an ecstasy, the fullness of the Spirit. And if you listen to us and Follow our instructions. You also may have the fullness of the Spirit and the fullness of liberty and be freed not only from the Mosaic restrictions but also from any of the apostolic restrictions on life, even perhaps having to do with marriage and when you may enjoy the God-given gift appetite of sex. You have the freedom and the liberty to choose for ourselves when we may engage in these things. The appetites are good appetites, gifts of God. Why should there be so many restrictions to deny ourselves what we deem to be best for us in our spiritual freedom and liberty? The Gnostics replacing the apostles with their call for self-denial and all this confession of sin and remaining depravity, you know, like the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am. Those days can be past. We are the justified. We are the forgiven. We have the exuberance. We have the, the fullness of the Spirit. And we have the liberty to decide now for ourselves what's best for our own spiritual development. There's a reason why, beloved, the apostle opens his epistle by saying, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, our hands have handled, we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that she hath made fellowship with us. We are not to be replaced. We are the ones who are the ones who walked with Jesus of Nazareth, Lord and Savior. We are the apostles. We are the ones through whom he yet speaks. We, the time of our, of our authority is not to be set aside. And if you imagine it is, and you no longer have to live according to the apostolic word in doctrine and in practice, you are much deceived. We saw him with our eyes. We declare this unto you. We have fellowship with the Father. And you, if you are to be his indeed, and claim to be his indeed, will live according to the apostolic word and not imagine that you are somehow set li at liberty from it and turn liberty, if you will, into a license. This, you see, is what is at stake. What is coming to pass at this time is what Christ Jesus himself warned the disciples about when he walked on earth as he was preparing them to be apostles, to be the preachers of the gospel and the authorities within the congregations as he was forming his New Testament 
church. He warned them, if you recall, that there would be deceivers who entered into the world. There would be wolves, and you might recognize them as wolves, who sought to devour and destroy the church, but there will also be wolves in sheep's clothing come in disguise, the instruments of the deceiver of one we know as Satan, but in our text called the devil because the word devil means to deceive. He is the deceiver and he wants to lead those who are Christ's own and the church astray and they do not come forth as Wolves, they come forth as though they too are sheep and are interested in the welding, in the joy and the triumph of the, of, the Christ, of the church and of the Christian life, if you will. Christ warned them of, of this, and not only would there be deceivers who were wolves in sheep's clothing and would even pass themselves off as Satan passing them off as Christ's agents when really they were his agents and using even certain doctrinal truths to to, to bring this about. We also believe in justification. We also believe in the payment by the, the blood of Jesus and there's no salvation apart from him. But now you have to make a decision yourself how you will live to your own spiritual development. Something, you know, that was indeed very very attractive to many in the church because we can have this doctrine we confess, we can have the assurance of salvation, justification, forgiveness, fullness of the Spirit, heaven is ours, and now we can also satisfy our appetites and not call them carnal, but good gifts of God that we may satisfy because God has given us them to enjoy all under the umbrella of Christianity, though it's time to set apart the apostolic restrictions and requirements and so on. Learn to live a little. Yea, have the apostles said that if you're going to have the approval of God, you have to live in a certain way and deny yourselves and be bound by their words? Be not deceived. We have the fullness of the Spirit. Here is new revelation. You are a people who have full liberty now and now enjoy life and the good gifts God has given you to enjoy. How you think is to your spiritual advantage and growth. Attractive to many. But they call having your cake and eating it too. Satisfying your appetites while you do so. Carnal appetites in the name of somehow freedom and even godliness. Christ had warned them not only of the deceivers who would come, but there would be those in the church who would be deceived and want to remain in the church as such. The parables. So are and forth to sow the seed. Matthew 13, the first, very first parable. And there is that which of course fell into good soil and bore up fruit. But there was also that which fell into this shallow soil, if you recall, and it sprang up with much enthusiasm, appeared for all the world to be fruitful, the fruit of the the preaching, believers, if you will. And then came the tests of their faith and what was required of them 
and call for denial and so on and being bearing Christ's reproach. They wanted nothing of it and having no deepness of root, they perish, bear no true fruit. But there's the second parable too, you know, the parable of the wheat and the tares. A good man plants a field with wheat to bear fruit and that night his enemy comes and he plants the tares, if you recall that parable. And having planted the tares, it springs up and, and then the servants go out into the field and they realize there's more here than we planted and there's wheat and there's tares, but one, one cannot tell one from the other, what shall we do? And the owner of the field says, let, let it lie until till the end at the time of the harvest. And then, of course, it will be sorted out, indicating that in the New Testament age, telling his disciples, there's going to be those who are true in faith and believers within the kingdom and the church, but also those who are only pretenders. And you cannot sort them out and tell who they are for who knows how long and this is going to continue till the end of the New Testament age. Let yourself and those whom you instruct, like Timothy, be aware of that. Which does not mean that as time goes on in the church, who those tares are never becomes evident. They may become evident in time. Some simply under the preaching of the word. God knows the heart and the word is preached with its distinctiveness and its requirements. And in time there are those who say, we don't want to pay that price. We don't live under that yoke. We want our own freedom. And they simply leave and they go their way. But there are others who remain in the church for who knows what reasons. And yet for all that they are not truly bound by the apostolic word. They want freedom from this aspect of the apostolic word and that aspect of the apostolic word. And in time they have to be addressed not only by the preaching but by, by elders and discipline. And finally, if they will not change their hearts and ways, they must leave or be excommunicated from the kingdom. But those who remain in the church who are as the, the tares, the the tares with the, with the wheat. And in the end, what is it that brings them to evidence who they are? Well, the apostle says in time, and this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil, who are manifest as the children of the devil, those who do not righteousness. They are not of God, neither he that loveth his brother. Who are not, who may be known that they are not the children of God, who do not, those who are not bound by the apostolic word. That's the righteousness here. He's talking about a righteousness, not of justification, first of all, but the justified living according to a righteousness, an uprightness. They do not righteousness. They will not live upright as defined by the apostolic word. And they do not love the brothers either. That's interesting doesn't simply say, and they love not God, because at root, of course, they don't really love God and God's word. But that's not what he says. He says they love not the brother. Why? Because everyone who's in church claims to love God. Who in the world will be a member of a church and say, I don't love God? Everyone claims, oh, I love God. Of course, they want to love the God of their own, own fashion off times and of their own making. But as 
the apostle goes on to say later in chapter 4, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how in the world can you claim to be loving God whom you have not seen? And so he's talking about those who display really at part, they're not going to be bound by the word of God. And so while they may say, I love God, yet when it comes to the brother in the church, remember they have nothing good to say. Critical, demeaning, and every kind of evil word in very demeaning and derogatory terms. And they are, as the apostle says, of their father, the end, who is the devil, the deceiver who pretends to be, if you will, an angel of light, will even use certain doctrines of the church to their own advantage, but they are sowing discord amongst the, the brethren and they are elevating themselves, if you see, to replace the apostles them, themselves. Concerning such, the apostle is saying, be ye warned. There is here then this contrast between those whom he labels as those who are of the devil and those who are born of God. In contrast to those who are of the devil and doing the devil's mischief in the church are those whom the apostle describes as doth not commit sin and those who cannot sin. Part of it, of course, that they also are those who love the brother and live in accordance with the apostolic word. But that's described as being those who do not sin and who, those who cannot sin. Let's understand what it is the apostle is not referring to here, what he does not mean by that phrase. And he does not mean by that phrase that there is the possibility of perfectionism when it comes to those who are true believers. Perfectionism, being finally free from sin as it were and even impervious to temptation itself because one has arrived at that high, holy elevation so filled with the Spirit that that which is of, of the world and of, of the flesh doesn't even appeal to me anymore. Not suggesting that. Be surprised how many over the ages of the church have taught that kind of perfectionism, beginning some view, some, to some extent by the Gnostics themselves, those who claim to have the deeper knowledge and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of perfectionism by saying, well, that which the apostles forbid and required and counted as sin really isn't in this new age sin anymore. So from some points of view, they would say you're sinless because what was once sin, like eating unclean meats, was no longer sin, was it? Well, these other things, too, we set aside and are no longer sin. Either you're free now to enjoy your appetites and your desires without qualm of conscience and feeling so filled with guilt. Live. Be uplifted. Enjoy your freedom and your liberty as we do and we are, a kind of perfectionism. But then as the church went apostate and became more and more Romish, you, of course, developed this idea of special saints, the Virgin Mary being the outstanding example, who supposedly herself was immaculate, no sin. And 
perform so many good works, extraordinary good works in godliness that you and I can draw on the treasury of merits to add to our own if we're going to have favor with God, that kind of perfectionism that developed. These saints among saints, almost, well, the Virgin Mary herself, sinless, and some later in life accomplishing this sinlessness so we can draw on the treasury of merits somehow to our own salvation. Righteousness outside of Christ himself. And then John Wesley with an Arminianism and his holiness teaching and the Methodism. You live in a certain method, a certain kind of self-discipline and there comes a point finally you can overcome sin and the, uh, and the temptation of sin and the attraction of sin if you discipline yourself properly as Wesley would lo- had laid out. And then finally, which some of us sitting here recall in our own past century, the rise of Pentecostalism and chariz- the charismatic movement, which was strong even in this area for, for some time, ex- making quite a noise of the second blessing, the fullness. There is the first blessing, the ordinary common believer, Christians going to heaven, but still in a lower level. And then there is the second blessing, as you taught and you We're so filled with the Spirit, so filled with ecstasy and joy that you didn't know whether you were in the body or out of the body and really became almost impervious to temptation and sin, so spiritual, so heavenly-minded. That's to be the goal, perfectionism. Well, beloved, that's not the apostle here. When he says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin and cannot sin is not teaching some form of a perfectionism. That's apparent. You go back to chapter 1, verse 8, you read this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice the present tense. He doesn't say, if we claim at one time we had no sin, we deceive ourselves. So one time we had no sin, but now we finally have left the way of all sin and even the attractiveness of, of sin. He doesn't say that, it's in the past. He says, if we say we have no sin in the present, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all have a remaining depravity with which we all have to deal and the apostle is not denying that. And as well, don't forget, in this passage, he's not contrasting believer with believer. So there are some in an upper echelon who have the second blessing and the deeper knowledge and then there's just the common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christian making it to heaven but not being very spiritual at all. He's not, just, he's not talking believer versus believer. He's talking believer versus unbeliever. Whosoever is born of God and every believer is born of God and is in this category, doth not commit sin and, can, and he cannot sin. Let me just point this out as well. The apostle is not simply referring to that seed. God's seed remains in him, and that seed is holy, and that seed cannot sin. Because the apostle does not say, whatsoever is of God cannot sin. It's true. The seed, this newness of life, is holy and impervious to sin. But he says, whosoever, not whatsoever, the seed, but whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And thirdly, just to guard against one other misapplication of the text or misrepresentation, though it's understandable, one that Martin Luther himself was given to, to distinguish between sins and sins. There are venial sins, venial sins which are 
common everyday sins of lack of patience and lack of, lack of kindness and lack of goodness toward, towards others. And those are the venial sins of which all can be and are guilty. But then there are the mortal sins. There's venial sins of impatience and lack of kindness and so on. And then there are the mortal sins that threaten one's life like blasphemy and murder and the abuse perhaps of, of children and of, and of violence and so on. Those are mortal sins, gross sins. Of them, the child of God cannot be guilty. He who is born again. But beloved, in the end, that explanation doesn't stand either because there are examples in Scripture of those who truly were believers and yet committed what Luther wanted to call the mortal sins. That's part of his Romanism that was left with him. This distinguishing between sins of various sorts. Simple fact is, of course, that David, the man after God's own heart, committed murder of Uriah. And he was guilty of that sin before the face of God. And Simon Peter, no less than Simon Peter as a disciple, denied his Lord with cursing and with swearing and was guilty of blasphemy. So those lamentable falls are not unknown to those who are the children of God. So it's not a reference to perfectionism or to the seed itself as such or to a certain category of sin from which the child of God is free. If not that, then what does this apostle have in mind? And what the apostle in the deed in the end has in mind is that those who are born of God do not continue in the way of sin. And they cannot continue committing sins and under the rule of sin. Not that they are never guilty of sin and that God never views their sins as sins, but they will not continue in the way of sin and persist in those sins and refuse to hear the word of God that calls them to turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil, from your sinful ways. They have been given newness of life they have been raised like those bones in the valley of Ezekiel and been breathed into by a life of the Holy Spirit and now they have ears that will hear the word you see and the eyes that see what God requires of them and they are given life to follow in those ways and listen to God's word and confess their sins and turn rather than persisting and going on in the ways. There are those, you know, who say, oh, I'm a great sinner. I'm a terrible sinner. I'm the worst of sinners. And they make a great confession of how terrible sinners. I can out confess you any day of the week and twice, twice on Sunday. And the next Friday, they're right back in the same sin. Falling right back into it. Made a wonderful confession about what terrible sinners they are. But you find out they're right back where they, what they confessed pursuing those ways, snared, you see, by that sin, and it has not, they have not broken with it or turned from it. That's what the apostle 
is talking about, and that's the contrast here. That's clear from the Greek. The Greek here is helpful. Notice the word helpful. I'm not saying that in order to understand this passage, you must know the Greek. So that only those of us who know the Greek, we are kind of in an elite category ourselves, and you must simply trust us what we say. I can tell you, beloved, the Gnostics knew the Greek, and there's been many a false teacher who was a scholar of the Greek and then took the Greek and turned the Word of God on its ear. But nonetheless, if one is honest with the Greek, it's helpful. There's a reason why we want our seminary students to study the Greek. As an old professor in Calvin College told me as I was taking my pre-seminary Greek, remember, gentlemen, the Lord calls mightily through the Greek department. You want those who have some understanding of the Greek in the explaining of the apostolic word. It's helpful. You don't need it because you can understand what this passage is not teaching apart from my knowing the Greek. Because you yourself know Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. And if the Apostle says in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, you know the con that, the that the same Apostle is not just simply a few verses later contradicting himself. We commit sin, and we are guilty of sin even as believers. But what the apostle is saying here, because there's a present verb with an infinitive, and when the Greek has a, a verb in the present tense with an infinitive, it means keep on, continuing on in the way of. So he's saying, he that is born of God cannot continue on in the way of sin, and committing those sins. There is the word of God that will come to him and he will hear that word of God. He will confess that sin and not simply that it's a great sin. Forgive me, Lord, but Lord, turn me, turn me and walk in the ways, you see, that is required of him. That's the meaning, you see, of the passage. Let's understand that the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of the Spirit is not this, that we all must have some kind of experience of some kind of ecstasy in the body, out of the body, who knows we are so full of the Spirit we can't tell whether we are even on the earth or not. But the evidence of the Spirit has to do with this knowledge of self and this knowledge of sin and our knowledge of Christ Jesus and His blood. Because remember those who have a perfectionist view think they have outlived even the knowledge, the need for the blood of Christ day by day and seeking the payment of the blood of Christ day by day to be applied to one's own account. And that's not apostolic. So you have this work of the Spirit who shows himself in the renewal unto godliness and not being separated from the ordinary believer, but having this seed, and that's an interesting word, the seed of God. That word seed is actually the word sperma. We might immediately go in a certain direction with that word, but it's simply the Greek word for the seed that's planted in the ground. 
and the word goes forth, the spirit applies that seed to the heart, you see. He has cultivated the heart, and the seed falls upon the ground. It's the seed of God that comes from God. It's the life of Christ himself, and it springs up, and it begins to bear fruit. Born of that seed. They cannot continue on in the way of sin, unconfessed, unturned from. That does not mean, beloved, that the child of God cannot fall into deep sins and be snared by sins and even walk for a time in those sins. David, beloved, committed sin with Bathsheba and didn't confess it for about a whole year. The Lot, brother Lot, went and pitched his tent towards Sodom and couldn't shake himself loose from that desire for more shekels, for, for more commerce, for, for more wealth until the Lord had to pluck him like a brand of, brand of fire out of the burning. Samson, how many times did he go back to Delilah? Once, twice, three, four times. Continued in that sin for a time. And yet, there came a point when the Lord took hold of them by the word and by discipline and shook them free from that sin and they made confession and they returned to the ways of godliness and seeking the ways of the Lord. The Spirit does that. He uses the, the seed, if you will, that seed of life to do that because that seed of life gives us the ability to respond as we ought to respond, the newness of life. And one might ask, well, what knowledge is it that brings one to his senses so that he says, I'm breaking with this, this snare, this besetting sin, having no more to do with it. The knowledge that as long as I walk in this way, I have not God's approval. And I have a barrier to fellowship with, with God. That, you understand, is the fundamental reason he has the seed and then through the word that seed bears a knowledge and understanding and one comes to the knowledge that I've affected my relationship to God and my bones wax within me roaring within me I have not the joy of my salvation it's more you see than simply what you find out in the world because you may have those in the world who are given to alcohol and in time they realize I'm destroying myself with alcohol, my physical body and my relationships and they wake up to that and they join Alcoholics Anonymous and they remain pretty committed to that and they're done with alcohol or with drugs because of how it's affected them and even their relationships. And a gambler addicted to gambling and finally says, not only am I bank corrupt financially, but I've destroyed my family relationships and it's time I wake up. And they put it behind and they leave those immoralities behind because of how it has affected me and the consequences of relationships. Well, beloved, those, those are true concerning sins, and if elders are working with those who have been snared by such sins, they bring that to their and our attention. You know what you're doing to yourself? You know what you're doing to your relationships? Wake up, man. But that's not the fundamental 
reason when as a believer turns he says I have sinned against my God I have displeased my God my relationship with God has been affected I know not the joy of my salvation I am in a pit of despair without a hope be merciful unto me O Jehovah God and so the deep spiritual reason and the awakening to the truth that fellowship with God comes in the way of faith but it's a way of faith you see that looks unto godliness and the resolution unto a godliness and is enjoyed in the way of following the apostolic ordinances and words beloved we need to hear this why do we need to hear this because we are those who though we be saints are still sinners and as sinners we still have a flesh that remains and with the flesh there are appetites unto sin and the devil knows that and he's alert and he's aware and he's powerful and he's persistent and he faces us with all kinds of temptations and left to ourselves we will fall we said the apostle says one will not continue on in the ways of those sins it's not he does not say but one who is a believer will never fall into those sins like Peter and David and Lot and Samson and others we may fall into those sins and apart from the grace of God beloved we will fall into those sins if we imagine we can face those temptations with our flesh on our own strength and without the grace we need day by day and what if one has fallen into those sins and been guilty of those sins and even right now perhaps in the congregation there is one or two or some who are snared by some besetting the sin, the sin that so easily besets us. What then? What hope is there? Am I beyond the pale? Beyond hope? Beloved, hear the word of the apostle. Verse 9, chapter 1. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm inclined to say it's as simple as that. What is required of us? Simply that we confess our sins with a sincere sorrow, of course. He doesn't ask for silver or gold. He doesn't say like the servants said to Naaman the Syrian, go out and accomplish some great, great deeds and show how worthy you are. He says, confess your sins. He is faithful. In spite of our unfaithfulness, he is yet faithful and merciful, and he who comes with a contrite heart and a lowly heart and pleads upon the mercies of Christ, he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that clause, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, goes even beyond the forgiveness of sins. Now it's going in the direction of the Holy Spirit. There is another aspect of grace for which we pray, beloved, and we must pray. Not simply forgive us our sins. If that's all we pray for, forgive us our sins, by next week we're going to fall right back into them. But we pray, Lord, 
God, grant to me the gracious operations of Christ's Holy Spirit to enable me to withstand the temptation, the appeal of the sin, that I may battle against it by the power of the Spirit and have the victory day by day. There is that grace too, beloved, that you and I must seek and that God does give to those who come in humility and sincerity. It's there for the asking, if you will, to withstand temptation, the operations of the Holy Spirit through prayer. This is what the apostle is getting at when he concludes his epistle, chapter 5, verse 18, we know that what's, whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Notice that same phrase. Whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Will not continue on and on in the way of sin. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Notice that. Keepeth himself. Himself? Reflexive? Shouldn't it read, he that is begotten of God is kept by God? Beloved, this this phrase is not denying that one is kept by God, but keepeth himself. In other words, it's the call, you see, as one who has life to hear the word of God, to confess one's sins, to cast oneself upon the mercy of God, and to find grace in time of need, both for forgiveness and the grace to say no, to turn, and to fight the battle of faith, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, day by day, to have the victory. Such is the demonstration that one has been born of God indeed, knowing his need for Christ, his blood, and his Holy Spirit, as we continue as the true children of God. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, and for the hope it gives us that we are not simply to rely upon ourselves and need not, lest we perish in the way. We know that there have been many a saint who has attempted that, and with disastrous results. But we thank thee, Father, that there is a word, that thou art a God of mercy, who hears the cry of those in need, who come in the name of thy Son the one known to the apostles whose name they declare and in his name there is forgiveness full and free and there is grace in time of need and the hope for victory day by day as we rely upon thee and seek that grace in Jesus' name, amen.